we should remember that Jesus started with 12, not a whole lot, in an effort to obviously reconstitute Israel and its 12 tribes. I think he did a pretty good job starting with 12, despite the setbacks, which were numerous at the beginning. We're going to begin with the discussion of Jesus. You can see the little uh, cinematic echo here at the beginning. Witness of Jesus, silence of the Lamb, question mark. Uh, because the usual argument is that Jesus said nothing of any relevance to uh, prohibiting homosexual practice. And indeed, if anything, much of what he said and did in his ministry would actually promote it. Um, this does not bear itself out in the evidence, and we will see why. This is the main text in which Jesus deals with issues of human sexuality. And what I want you to focus on is the premise of the entire argument. Pharisees ask him if it's permissible for a man to divorce his wife, testing him, and in response he said, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce and to divorce. And Jesus said, With a view to your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this command. Now that's already an interesting view of a commandment given by God to Moses in the view of Jesus and of Israel at this time at Mount Sinai. But here Jesus says this particular commandment Moses himself issued and God allowed because of human hardness of heart. So there is change that does, can take place in the expression of God's will moving from the Old Covenant to the New. But I want you to note the direction of the change. Here is an allowance given to men because of their hardness of heart that Jesus is now revoking. That's change. But it's not change in the direction of allowing greater opportunities of expression for human impulse, but rather retracting that allowance, consistent as we'll see with creation. Because Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, here's something that trumps the law, he said. When the law is inconsistent with the will of God expressed in creation. And he cites two texts from Genesis which are pivotal, and we talked about them yesterday, and it's why I spent a lot of time at the beginning, much more time even than focusing on the issue of Leviticus or Sodom, is focusing on the creation text, because that's where Jesus himself points us. If you want to learn what is the foundation for the normative will of God for human sexuality, you have to start with the creation. And he cites Genesis 1.27, which we looked at last time, male and female, he made them. And Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, he concludes, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what then God has yoked together, let no man, literally, separate. And then there's a further question by disciples. The basic principle that Jesus is operating with in his view of marriage here is a back-to-creation view for sex. Allowances that were permitted in the Old Testament 
for the people of God will no longer be permitted because it's not in keeping with the will of God expressed from the beginning. And we also learn here that marriage is not an institution that human beings can change at will and tinker with as they desire, but is, it is a divinely ordained institution between one man and one woman in a lifelong bond of commitment and trust. And effectively what Jesus does here he, is he predicates a view of marital monogamy and marital indissolubility, that is its permanence. Interestingly enough, on a little element here, which we're now going to elaborate on. And I'm going to elaborate on it. If you want to argue that a, a figure in the ancient world, in this case Jesus, believed a certain point of view, it's helpful if you can get any kind of analog to that in the ancient world. Did anyone else reason in at least a similar way among Jews? And interestingly enough, the analog exists among a group in ancient and early Judaism that would be regarded as the most extreme in Judaism. They were so rigorous in their observance of the law of Moses that the Essenes at Qumran, around which a lot has been written since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s, that the Essenes at Qumran regarded the Pharisees as moral wimps, overly lax in their observance of the commands given in the Law of Moses. Okay, that will give you a perspective. Now, they actually bear the closest resemblance to the view that Jesus promoted in Mark 10, parallel Matthew 19. Isn't that an interesting th observation? When it comes to sexual ethics, and we're going to see, Jesus even outdid the Essenes in the demand. Now, here's a figure that we've been widely misunderstood as essentially allowing us all to do whatever our heart's inner desire is to do, as long as we feel we're not hurting anybody. And as regards sexual ethics, just, it just happens to be 180 degrees opposite of what we actually find in Jesus. Now what Qumran did is they challenged the view of polygamy in Israel. And of course, uh, specifically here, uh, polygyny, from gune meaning woman, multiple wives, because there was never any polyandry, that is from an air man, multiple husbands. A woman was not allowed multiple husbands, okay? Women were always bound in ancient Israel by the monogamy principle. But men were not. Now, did Moses know that men have on average ten times the main sex hormone testosterone than do women? No, he probably didn't know that nomenclature, but he probably saw the results. And he was a man, and he cut men a break. Uh, that was not given to women. Now what Jesus could have done is simply give to women the break that existed for men. Instead, he revoked the license given to men. Qumran uh, rejected polygamy in these grounds. Taking two wives in their lives is wrong because the foundation of creation is male and female, he created them, citing 
the one-third of the text of Genesis 1.27 that Jesus himself cited. And because, quote, now this next text is interesting because that phrase, male and female, Hebrews keva, appears elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible other than in Genesis 5.1, which is an introduction to a genealogy and is a verbatim citation of Genesis 1.27. Other than that instance, appears otherwise in the Hebrew Bible only in the Noah's Ark narratives. They went in the Ark two by two, male and female. So it's what they cite. And they went into the Ark two by two. And they said, you see the connection here? There's a natural self-contained two-ness to the sexual bond given by the existence of two primary sexes, male and female. In other words, the two-ness of the sexes, the binary or sexually dimorphic character of the human sexual spectrum becomes the basis for limiting the number of partners in a sexual union to two at any one time. Now, it used to be thought that Qumran also forbade remarriage after divorce, or at least that was speculated, but discover the, de the Temple Scroll and other documents now indicate to most Qumran scholars that they did not go to that point. It's like our own society. Which is easier to prohibit? Concurrent polygamy or version of serial polygamy in a revolving door of divorce and remarriage? Well, it's much easier to prohibit the former, right? Concurrent polygamy. Uh, because that's worse, and it's easier to prohibit something that's worse. But even Qumran, which is regarded, again, as the most rigorously, uh, ethically rigorous movement in early Judaism, on the issue of sexual ethics is outdone by Jesus, who implicitly takes in the prohibition of polygamy by going even further and prohibiting a revolving door of divorce and remarriage, remarriage after divorce, which is really the critical element that Jesus addresses the remarriage, the divorce is wrong, but the remarriage is worse because the remarriage is having sex with somebody while your, while your marital partner, whom you think you divorced, but whom God did not accept as divorced, is still around. And so it's polygamy in God's eyes. That's Jesus' approach. He one-upped Qumran. Now that's an astonishing image of Jesus and it cuts completely against the grain of the stereotype promoted in mainline denominations. And we're going to see that this is not at odds. Now we have to remember who we're talking about here. Now if this were any other figure, we would just say, well, he's a figure of hate. Except we're talking about Jesus. And anyone who would accuse Jesus of being a paragon of hate has lost it. And, and really needs to be restored in some significant way because this is the model for love and yet he's willing to make the most extraordinary demand for sexual ethics of which we are aware anywhere in the ancient world he is unsurpassed in his demand which means too that he didn't simply naively imbibe at the cultural well, but he thought long and hard about what he did, 
and he did it knowing he was bucking the trend that existed everywhere. That's an extraordinary, that's courage. Now, it says a lot about Jesus, too. He also apparently believed in overriding Mosaic law here that he had the power to unilaterally amend the Constitution of Israel, given by God. Now, you try to do that in the United States, unilaterally amend the American Constitution, you'll be, they have nice padded rooms for you to be able to occupy. Not going to happen. But Jesus took something even greater and unilaterally amended it. That's why he often began his sayings with, Amen, I say to you. Amen is a confirmatory particle in Hebrew. It's a response particle in which you confirm what has just been said. For Jesus to introduce his own sayings by that, which is possibly unique uh, in Judaism, and if not, we have only one other inscriptional evidence, which is doubtful. It's certainly highly distinctive, and it's a way for him, in effect, saying, I don't have to wait for the amen. My statements are self-confirming. That's why I don't appeal, he says, to any other preceding rabbi or any other scribe uh, in the past because what I say is self-authenticating, period. It doesn't, it's not in need of anyone else's confirmation. Amen, I say to you, I affirm to you, this is categorically the case. Now, I could stop there and we'd be done with the New Testament because uh, the important point to be made here, well, there are other elements here, but the important point I want to make here is although Jesus does not explicitly address the issue of homosexual practice here, what he does do is predicate a new and demanding sexual command on the requirement that there be a male and female in a sexual bond. It's the two-ness of the sexes created as complementary counterparts by God in creation, intentionally so, that becomes the foundation for developing other normative sexual commands. Yes, predicates on mean, meaning it is founded on. The foundation on which you draw other, extrapolate other principles is, are the principles enunciated in Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. Now, what is common between Genesis 1.27 and 2.24? Not a whole lot, because he only cites one-third of Genesis 1.27. Male and female, he made them. Not a whole lot of text there. What's in common between Genesis 1:27 and 2:24? It's really male and female, man and woman. That these constitute the two and only two persons that can unite in a marital bond. There's otherwise no reason for citing Genesis 1:27, and the Qumran text cinches it. The reason for the citation is, it's the self-contained two-ness of the sexes that allows us to draw conclusions about the num limitation on the number of partners in a sexual union. What that means is not merely a slippery slope, although the arguments used to support homosexual practice, proponents of those arguments are basically supplying both the slope and the grease. But my main point is not the slippery slope it creates and that as if the acceptance of homosexual practice could lead to the allowance of something worse, committed polyamory, 
or what the gay men's issues in religion called a couple years ago in a theme session for the American Academy of Religion, polyfidelity, in which they used the Trinity. Yeah, I, I don't even have the imagination to make this up. In which they used the Trinity as an example of a sexual threesome. Okay? There you go. And they consider us extreme. I mean, this is... This is just unbelievable. Of course, they followed up the following year with the theme session on sadomasochism, where God is the chief sadomasochist in terms of uh, having Jesus on his son on the cross. So there you go. Promoting it, apparently. So this is, uh, this is unbelievable stuff, but I'm not making it up. You can go to my website. You can see the documentation for that. So what that means is it's not that polyamory is work. Polyamory, if you don't know what that means, bless your heart. Uh, you're pure. Uh, I've been, we've been corrupted, some of us, by this terminology, but polyamory simply means multi, many partnered love. Uh, it's a, basically a term for having uh, sexual commitment to more than one person concurrently. It's not that polyamory or its marital uh, counterpart polygamy is worse than homosexual practice. How can it be worse? The reason for rejecting polyamory or polygamy is predicated on a male-female prerequisite. So the violation of the foundational prerequisite must be worse than the violation of any superstructure predicated on that foundation. So when I say, you know, it could lead to some, I don't say it, it could lead to something worse. It could lead to polyamory. You do have a polyamory awareness group now in the Unitarian Universalist Church endorsed by the president of Star King Seminary, which is the main UU seminary. Uh, and we have had this promoted by Christian homosexual writers and the Metropolitan Community Churches over the last couple of years typically has a theme session in their national meeting, one or two, on polyamory. So this is not, you know, all that unusual. I, I expect that is the next frontier, if you want to refer to that. Uh, but it's not worse. The worse is already happening. It could lead to more, but the more is not worse. So I would say to people in mainline denominations, unless you're willing to promote committed polyamory and ordain such persons, what are you doing promoting something worse now? Because you're imploding the reason, the only valid reason for rejecting the polyamory. We'll talk about that more in the next session. If you wanted to look at other arguments for what Jesus' view would be, there aren't, it's not too difficult to find uh, many other pieces of evidence so that we know what Jesus' is position on a male-female prerequisite is. We've already indicated it with the most powerful evidence of that in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. But we also know it from other factors. We know that Jesus retained the law generally in his viewpoint, uh, even tithing minute things. His point was not to, not, not to leave the weightier matters undone, but still doing these things. It's Paul that talks about the abrogation of the law. But we know that Paul, we know Paul's view in homosexual practice, or we'll see it in a moment anyway, and that's pretty crystal clear too. To argue that Jesus had some sort of a more open view when his argument about retention of the law uh, outdid Paul on that point. Uh, I don't know whether, how you want to put it. It's just that he operates in a time before his death and resurrection when the law then can be abrogated. Continuity remains in the divine will. But there's no, no reason to say that he would then have rejected something of this pivotal significance given already in the creation text. We also know that Jesus' view on sexual ethics generally moves in the direction of intensification of the law's sexual ethic rather than promoting 
greater freedom. Certainly this is true of his statement that all men rue the day that Jesus said, the text about adultery of the heart, where Jesus effectively said, I'm not even going to give you a pass in your thought life. So if you, if you actively entertain thoughts of having sex with a woman who is not your wife, you've committed adultery. I don't think he was saying, there's a little bit of hyperbole there, I don't think he's saying it's as bad as the actual commission of, of, of adultery as an act, but he's saying that you don't get a pass. God also wants to reach into your interior life and be the Lord of that. Now here's where I like to appeal to the saying about uh, forgiving 70 times 7 or 77, however that's to be translated, or 7 times in a day because for men this is a difficult area. Right? It's very difficult to internally regulate. And if you're a man and you say that that's not the case, you're either brain dead or you're lying. Okay? Those are the two options. So you can... Well, but then if you're a male homosexual, you're just diverting the attention to other men. But you're still having the same... Homosexual males still remain very much male in their sexual patterns. They just divert the, to the different object. And, of course, the divorce-remarriage text also is, a, is the greatest intensification we find uh, in the ancient world in that direction. And, and it's interesting to note that there is an interesting saying in between those two remarks. Now, this, these texts I just referred to are in what is called the antithesis in the Sermon on the Mount, which can be summarized as you used to be able to get away with the following, and now I tell you no longer, I'm closing that loophole. That's the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, which is presented by Matthew as a programmatic statement of Jesus' message. In other words, if we want to know what Jesus believed in Nietzsche, the, the core message of Jesus, here it is. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with warnings, and it, with the Beatitudes, and it ends with warnings about narrow is the entrance into the kingdom of God, few enter into it. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I never knew you because you didn't bear fruit. And those who merely hear my words but don't do them are like people who build their house on sand and when the cataclysm comes, they're destroyed. Triplicate set of warnings at the end. And then we say, well, we don't really believe that. Even in the church, even among many faithful. But the warnings are presented there intentionally. The demand is great. Brace yourself. Gird yourself for the coming kingdom. And in between these two statements, two of the six antitheses, one-third, have to do with sex. So how insignificant could sex be for Jesus? And in between the two of them is this little pleasant saying, if, you, if your hand, eye, or foot should threaten your downfall, cut it off, because it's better to go into heaven maimed than to go into hell full-bodied. That's a pretty rigorous set of sayings there. And... It probably has more to do than just with sex. Mark uses it in a different context in Mark 9, but it certainly has includes sex, sexual ethics, and sexual purity. According to Jesus, what you do sexually could get you thrown into hell. And since he's an eminently loving person, I have to presume that that is not a hateful remark. But it's a truthful warning. If you have young children and your young children are about to touch a hot stove and you do nothing to warn them, do you know that state social services does not regard that as love, but they will take your children out of your home and prosecute you? 
So we get it. We know it in our society. We know it with regard to our own children. And by the way, touching a hot stove as bad as it is, is nothing compared to endangering your eternal life in the presence of God. And we see so little urgency in the church over such matters. To our shame. To our everlasting shame. It's why pastors need to begin talking more rigorously and more frequently about the importance of sexual purity across the board. John the Baptist, why did he get executed? Why did he get beheaded? What was he complaining about in Herod Antipas? He took his brother's wife, who was also incidentally related to him as a half-niece. So it was also incest law violated. On the basis of sexual purity, the violation of sexual purity, he criticized Herod Antipas and was executed for it. This is the man who baptized Jesus. So presumably there's some degree of continuity between Jesus and the man who baptized him. And John the Baptist thought sexual purity was a significant enough issue that he would risk his life, criticizing the national ruler or the regional little kinglet ruler in Galilee. And he went to his death for it. And Jesus didn't say, oh, that was a mistake on your part. You know, he shouldn't have really gone into, you know, majored in a minor there. You know, you can bet he would have agreed with him. Sexual purity matters. Early Judaism had a united opposition to homosexual practice. In fact, I can make a case that the only form of consensual sexual behavior regarded as more extreme than homosexual practice is, can you guess what it is? And here consent has to be used advisedly. Bestiality. That's it. Not adultery, not even incest, not fornication, not sex with a prostitute are regarded as more severe in early Judaism because this is regarded as a foundational violation of creation norm. No exceptions for it are ever given in scripture. There's no need to tighten the belt later. Pardon the pun. There's no need to uh, revoke any concessions made earlier at a later point because concessions were never made. This was always the foundation. And it's the foundation, as we noted, that Jesus appealed to when he wanted to give uh, what is prescriptive and normative and proscriptive in sexual ethics. The early church had a united opposition to homosexual practice. There's, we have no knowledge of any dissent until the Gnostics, who we don't regard as normative, incidentally. And it's not even clear that they did. It's dependent on some testimony by church fathers, but not actually from the Nagamati codices. So it's a little bit of a debated point whether anyone did, but if anyone did, it would have been the Gnostics, who, as we know, are heretics. Uh, Jesus is saying about the defiling effect, defi defiling effect of desires for panea. Remember that saying, it's not the food that you ingest that defiles you. It's the desires for what God, that comes from within that God expressly forbids you to do. The cultivation of those desires are truly body defiling. And uh, three of the elements there have to do with sexual offenses, sexual immoralities, uh, panea, uh, uh, asogeia, uh, licentiousness, which is a, a way of talking about lack of sexual self-restraint, and adulteries. Three of the six desires he talks about are sexual desires. Pornei, uh sexual immoralities, plural here, singular pornea, 
uh, is a catch-all term in early Judaism for any form of sexual behavior that God finds to be wrong. And you can actually go down the list. They actually, you know, have a hierarchy for them. And it ranges from bestiality, homosexual practice, uh, the worst forms of incest, adultery, uh, lesser forms of incest, um, sex with a prostitute, and fornication. It's pretty straightforward. Everybody knows what the list is in early Judaism. And Jesus said the desires to, that you cultivate that come from within to do those things, those are body defiling in a holistic way. So in effect, Jesus is saying, you know that analogy? You know, Jesus is basically speaking to our culture. You know the common analogy that's now made between uh, the prohibitions of homosexual practice and the food laws? Jesus said, don't make them. Sex is not like food. And that's the same remark that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6 when he's talking to the Corinthians with regard to the case of the incestuous man. And he takes a slogan that either he constructs, which he believes uh, represents the position of the community at Corinth, or which is an actual slogan of theirs that they apply to idle meat because he reappropriates the slogan in chapter 10, all things are lawful for me, or all things are within my authority to do, literally. It's a, a Greek verb, exousiazo, which was related to uh, exousia, meaning right or authority. And Paul says, in effect, whatever relevance that has for food laws, remember, you know, food is no big deal, you know, food is not going to last, you know, the kingdom of God, as he says in Romans, doesn't consist of food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whatever relevance that slogan may have for food laws, and he will have to qualify it, it does, have, it does not have relevance for idle meat, that he's going to qualify in chapters 8 to 10, but it certainly has no real relevance for sex, because sex is not like food. What you do sexually affects the body holistically. He's only being a good disciple of Jesus, echoing Jesus' remarks here in Mark, uh, picked up also again in Matthew, uh, in making this point at Corinth. And he picks a case that you would think would not even be, you know, substantial. I mean, you, how involved can you be if you're in and having sex with a prostitute, which is an exchange of funds? You don't really love the woman, so how can you be one flesh with her? No, even that, he says even the most impersonal form of sexual intercourse outside the covenant bond of marriage is body defiling in a holistic way. Everything else outside, outside the body says, you know, it's outside the body, but when you commit sexual immorality, it affects the body holistically. And so he says, flee immorality, flee sexual immorality or pranea, which matches the saying of flee idolatry in chapter 10. These are the two big items for Paul, idolatry, sexual immorality. Jesus on the Decalogue adultery prohibition. Certainly subscribe to the Decalogue. I don't even need to note the text here to, to make that point. And the Decalogue itself presumes male-female marriage, honoring your father and mother, not coveting your neighbor's wife. It's implicit in the Decalogue itself. Jesus is saying about Sodom, if you understand it in its context, as we know to talked about yesterday, a key element of, of Sodom, what is a key element of inhospitable uh, greeting of strangers who come into the city, it's treating their maleness as if it were not maleness, and so dishonoring and degrading them. And if that's how all the major Jewish writers of the first century interpreted it, makes perfect sense in Jesus' understanding. The only difference that Jesus gives is a little added twist. Even worse now will be if you don't accept me. And I, I have no argument there. 
you have to accept Jesus first. That's step one. I mean, if somebody's committing homosexual practice, clearing that up isn't going to really help them all that much in terms of inheriting the kingdom of God if they still don't embrace Jesus. So you do have to get that squared away first. Or you can do the square away the sexual immorality first, I suppose, and then accept Jesus, but you, whatever, you want to do that as soon as possible, basically. And the born eunuch statements, uh, though sometimes used to support homosexual practice, actually does the opposite. Uh, the implication of the born eunuch statement uh, may be, we don't know for certain, but it certainly includes our sexual persons, persons who don't experience sexual desire. Uh, and it may also include persons who don't experience men who don't experience desire for women, but do for men. There's some late evidence where that possibly may be the case. But what I want you to note from his remark is he compares the born eunuchs and the made eunuchs, the castrated eunuchs, to the metaphor of uh, believe, followers of his who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And what does that mean in the context? It's in the whole discussion about marriage, his, his appeal to the creation text, his limitation of the number of partners in a sexual union to two, whether serially or concurrently. And the disciples at that point say, well, you know, you've got to love the disciples. They're always saying what we think, but we're too afraid to say, uh, well, that it's expedient not to be married. And why do they say that? Well, if you can't get rid of a, a wife who's a pain in the neck, and you've got to have her for the rest of your life, that'll be really tough. Now, of course, the wife would say, hey, buddy, look at yourself. I mean, you're no great shakes yourself. I've got to stay with you. That's the real issue. That's the real question. How is that ever going to happen? That's a big demand. And, uh, it, you know, there are people, there are exceptions to this rule, but generally if you've been married a long time, and I've only been married to be 26, 26 years, just actually a couple of days ago, uh, and my wife and I first met when we were 13 in high school, and I'm 52 now, and she's 52, so you can do the math from there. So we've known each other, not in the biblical sense always, but we knew each other, that was until we got married in 25, but uh, we, uh, we have known each other in some capacity for a very long time. And uh, we're really not the right birth orders, actually. It doesn't work out too well in family dynamics. So we, we you know, for us, marriage is, and I found out for many, marriage is hard. So what? This is the person God is going to use as the key person to shape Jesus Christ in you. And I've never known God's ability to shape Christ in somebody uh, as limited to only when things are going well for you. In fact, I find that my spiritual life tends to accelerate when I'm experiencing some form of deprivation or difficulty. And then I have to learn on, to, to rely, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1, on the one who raises from the dead. So you can never really disengage from your marital partner, no matter how difficult the relationship is or isn't, because that's the person God is using to shape Jesus in you. And you are to love your spouse as yourself. Certainly the love commandment in Leviticus 19.18 uh, would apply not just that to that case of your marital partner, but it, you'll find that it does very well apply there. And if you hurt your spouse with whom you've now become one flesh, uh, it's basically like, you know, accidentally biting on your tongue with your teeth and then knocking your teeth out because you're angry at your teeth. Well, you didn't really do yourself a favor there. Okay. So you've got to learn in marriage to bless your spouse, even if you feel your spouse has in some way hurt you. Marriage is always a venue that God can use. It's never a venue that you can say, well, God can't use this. 
And the born eunuch statement, again, the reference to the person who makes himself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven is a remark about persons who, do, who abstain from marriage in order to maximize their freedom of time and risk to proclaim the kingdom of God. But the implication is not that they're avoiding the marriage penalty where you're stuck with, or two, you should say two, your partner for all of life, by having sex outside of marriage. Jesus isn't permitting them from everything he just said about his appeal to the two-ness of a sexual bond in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He's not revoking that. So the reference to those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom are those who have no more sexual intercourse if they're not going to get married in the one form of marital bond only that God accepts between a man and a woman. So if, if born eunuch includes men who have some biologically based attraction to men but not to women, then Jesus' implication by the comparison is they're not having any sex. And that fits perfectly with Jesus' statement about adultery of the heart. If you want to make an argument that I'm born this way with certain impulses, therefore God has to make allowances to allow me to do it, there, I can think of no other figure in all of human history for whom this would be a more futile argument than Jesus. Because Jesus isn't interested in how you were born. He's interested in what God is recreating you to be, as we'll see in a moment. So, if born eunuch includes men born with same-sex attractions, Jesus' whole implication of his remark is they're not allowed to have sex if it's not in the context of the only form in which it's allowed, a marital bond permanent between one man and one woman. Now, the counter-argument is, but Jesus was loving. <laughs> okay. Understand, that we, haven't, we haven't said anything antithetical to the principle of love yet. Okay? But we will deal with some of these other texts. Now, he did reach out to tax collectors and, and sexual sinners. Tax collectors. Tax collectors were the scum of first century Palestine. And a good reason for it. Liberation theologians would have had a field day with them. They had a justly deserved reputation for collecting several times over what they were supposed to collect of their compatriots in Palestine, uh, serving an oppressive foreign power and benefiting materially from it at the expense of those living on the economic margins of life. So you can imagine, if you don't know where the next meal is going to come for you to feed your family, and a fellow Jew tax collector comes, and he just extorted out of you three times what he was supposed to collect. Now, how do you feel about him? Not too good. And yet Jesus aggressively reached out in love to them, fraternizing with them, eating with them, attending to them the proclamation of his message of the coming kingdom. To do what? They can, should continue in the behavior? No. There's nobody who argues in Jesus' studies that Jesus is soft on economic exploitation. There's not, a, not even any of the Jesus Seminar scholars believe that. Nobody believes that. Everybody knows he's well within the prophetic line here, and in fact, even ratchets it up. He's very strongly against economic exploitation and material aggrandizement at the expense of others. And yet, he's devoting so much of his ministry to reaching out to them. Not to condone what they're doing. Remember Zacchaeus. If I have collected more than I was supposed to collect, and if you have to ask that, you probably have, I will pay back several times over what I collected. 
Ah, now the kingdom of God, Jesus says, has come near. This is a sign that you are repenting of what you did. But the repentance is required. And it's the same thing with his outreach to sinners, including, we know from many examples, sexual sinners. Not to extend to them permission to continue what they're engaged in, but rather recognizing that these are the groups that are at highest risk of not inheriting the very kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims. And those who currently promote homosexual practice are today's modern Pharisees. You would say, well, that's not possible. How do you make that connection? Here's how you make that connection. The Pharisees could not get their theological imaginations around the notion that Jesus could both intensify God's ethical demand on the one hand, and on the other hand, aggressively reach out in love to the biggest violators of that demand. They thought that if Jesus was reaching out in love to sinners and tax collectors, sexual sinners and to economic exploiters, he must be compromising God's ethical demand. And therefore, they dismissed him. But Jesus said, no, those two things go together. I mean, if the Titanic is going down, what is the godly thing to do? Get people on the lifeboats. And if there's somebody who's, you know, playing a nice little tune on the Titanic and thinking everything is fine, you've got to wake that person up to the reality of what actually is happening. happening. Otherwise, even though you say you're acting in love, functionally you're acting in hate. If love is uninformed by truth, you could find yourself in a position where you're functionally acting in hate. Like the example I gave about touching a hot stove. If you think, hey, you know, let your kids experiment and knock themselves out. All right? Well, that, because it's not based on truth, on an accurate understanding of what will now transpire, turns out functionally to be hate. Whatever the affect is. So Jesus reached out to those in greatest danger and greatest need to call them to repentance because otherwise they would be destroyed. And he understood that love is not antithetical to the ethical demand because you're not allowed to compromise God's ethical demand. As if somehow I could extend to you the permission to engage in something as if I am God and you're, not, you're going to stand before me on the day of judgment and I'm going to say that was fine with me. That really is not up to me. So this is the demand of God. This is what God is requiring. It's up to us to proclaim what is true and aggressively reach out in love to those who are at the highest risk of not inheriting the kingdom that God is bringing. And the parable of the lost son or prodigal son is a perfect case in point. This is a very meaningful parable for me in life. I read it early on after becoming a Christian. As you know, the... the Stories about one of two, the younger son who goes out and he spends half his father's inheritance on a dissolute life, including, the text says, on prostitutes. And then he runs out of money. Something about deprivation that's very effective in bringing us to repentance. And he comes to a point so low in his life where he's eating what the pigs are eating that he says, if my father just receives me as a hired hand, I don't even deserve, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. Now that's an expression of repentance. And his return, returning is a Hebrew metaphor for repentance, shuv, returning to God, is a mark of that repentance as well. So he doesn't come saying, oh, Father, give me the other half of the inheritance so I can spend that. No, it's, I don't, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired hand. That's more than enough. Instead, his father throws a celebration for him. Why? Because what matters to the father is not whatever he did before, but rather that he who once was lost has now been found. And how has he been found? By repentance. 
and in humility coming back and saying, in your grace, Father, I'll take whatever you have for me. Now, that was a meaningful parable to me because of the older brother appendage to this parable. By the way, if you want to know the most important thing about parable interpretation, it's just like buying real estate. What's the most important thing they tell you about real estate? Three words repeated. Location, 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 which I've never understood. I've always bought more house in a location where that, you know, the property value doesn't increase. Oh, well, I've learned it. But, but with parables, I try to learn it, which is where you situate yourself in the parable is very critical. And if you situate yourself here as the lost or prodigal son, well, pat yourself on the shoulder because he does pretty well. He gets half the father's inheritance, spends it, and then a celebration is thrown on his behalf. Wonderful. Okay, who could not want that image for themselves? Okay, but really the way you should place yourself is the older brother who stayed with his father. Now, for me, that was meaningful because literally and figuratively, I was the older brother. I did have one older sister and one older brother. I'm a third of six, upper middle class, uh, in a Catholic family, grew up in a Catholic family. My mother had five children in five years, for which alone she thinks she's going to heaven. And having had two children, I'm willing to concede the point. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Well, I had three sisters after me, and my older sister never was allowed to, I didn't allow her to boss me around. I just stuck with my brother, and we bossed them around. So that's the way we thought it, it operated. Um, so uh, at some point, uh, my, uh, one of my younger sisters uh, realized the difficulty. We would set a certain standard in elementary school and junior high. This, the teachers came to expect a certain thing about the Gagnon children. Okay, and um, in terms of academic performance and everything else, there was a lot of pressure in one of my younger sisters. And when she got into junior high school, she got involved with substance abuse, uh, the wrong crowd, uh, a lot of swearing, drinking, smoking, drugs, and a lot of contention at home. A lot of yelling at my parents, and uh, it was just really difficult. I, I grew to hate her. And one day she ran away at the age of 14, away from home from New Hampshire, as we found out later, to Maryland. When she left, my, and I was not a Christian, when she left, my, I was a nominal Catholic, which is not to say the Catholics are not Christians, but I wasn't. I was a nominal Catholic. I thought, good riddance. Now we'll have peace. But I would wake up every day before going to school and hear my father wailing. And my mother and I thought they were going to crack up. So the hate that I had for my sister was overwhelming. And when she was brought back by the police, not willingly, some months later, I wanted nothing to do with her. As far as I was concerned, she was dead. So when a year or so after this, I became a Christian, and I read this text in, in Luke 15. I knew exactly who I was, literally and figuratively. I was the older brother. And I could not figure out why the older brother wasn't being commended in the parable. That's the, my problem. That was a real tough one for me. That was a long time coming for me to recognize how extraordinarily gracious God is. And not only to the younger brother, but also to the older but I could understand the older brother because he stayed around and saw how his father suffered and could not understand why a younger brother would then be celebrated simply because he returned. 
after running out of money. But that's our gracious God. That's how gracious God is to all of us. And in understanding that, we understand the magnitude of God's grace in the midst of his demand. But there's never any relinquishment or diminishment or dilution of the demand. Because the failure to repent leads to the exclusion from the kingdom of God. So the outreach has to be radical and aggressive and loving to the groups that are at highest risk of not making it into the kingdom. That's what this is about. And Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, you know, often used also to legitimize acceptance of homosexual practice. But very important text here. People say, well, you know, don't throw stones at anybody, which they mean metaphorically. It's not, you have to know when to take a text literally and metaphorically. Some people say, well, you read scripture literally. And I say, well, that's good for some texts, actually. Not everything is in parables. Not everything is in similes. You know, the command not to commit adultery is not a metaphor for something. You're really not supposed to commit adultery. The command against not having sex with your mother, with which Paul has to deal with in 1 Corinthians 5, is not a metaphor for something. You're really not supposed to have sex with your mother. You have to know when texts are to be taken in their genres literally and when in their genres metaphorically. And this is not a metaphor here. Because if the woman is stoned who has been caught in an adulterous act, what does it do? Well, it's an old saying, dead people don't repent. You kill her, and you foreclose the opportunity of repentance. Now, Jesus isn't saying don't stone her because this isn't really a major offense. Au contraire, it's actually the opposite. It's because it's a huge offense. And it's something worse than capital sentencing in this life, Jesus said. And that is loss of the kingdom of God forever. So I'm going to extend, every, despite the Mosaic Law, every last opportunity for repentance. And then he tells her at the end, go and from now on, no longer be sinning. Now, what is the thought after that? Well, we know what the thought after that is. Because there's a very similar remark just a few chapters earlier. No longer be sinning. Why? Lest something worse happen to you. And in the context of John 5.14, it's very clear what that something worse is. It's failure to inherit eternal life. That's the prospect for those who continue the life of serial, unrepentant sin. Something worse could happen to you. Something worse even than capital sentencing. Not inheriting the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. That's why he reaches out to the woman. Whereas Pharisees apparently don't care that such people are going to hell. Jesus didn't say they're not going to hell. He said, rather, I'm going to exert every last effort to reclaim them for the kingdom. That's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee today is the person on either end of the theological spectrum who believe that love and ethical demand and compliance with that demand are exclusive. That is the modern-day Pharisee. Those who promote homosexual practice and say it's no big deal and don't worry about it and God's not going to do anything about it, agree with the Pharisees that to elevate God's ethical demand is antithetical to love and they choose love. But that isn't what God believes. And it isn't what the primary 
portrayer of love, Jesus Christ, in human history, believed. Love your neighbor. There's a lot of talk in early Judaism about the context for love your neighbor. Here's the context. By the way, it took me a long time to realize that the context for Leviticus 19.18b, the second greatest, love, second greatest commandment according to Jesus, happens to be Leviticus 19.17 and 18a. Isn't that brilliant? Takes a lot of years of PhD work and subsequent training to, to realize that, but there you go. And here's the context. You shall not hate your neighbor. You shall not take revenge against your neighbor. You shall not hold a grudge against your neighbor. And if your neighbor does wrong, you shall reprove your neighbor, lest you incur guilt for failing to warn them. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is widely talked about in early Judaism. It would have been understood by Jesus as the context. And indeed, it is echoed in his statement on rebuke and forgiveness in Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him, even if he sins seven times a day. Now, I don't know about you, but if my spouse ever came home and said, well, I committed adultery seven times today with seven different people, but uh, I repent, so please forgive me. Well, we're going to have to have a conversation here now. And it's going to be a long one, lasting about ten years. Okay, because it's kind of hard to accept the genuineness of a confession of repentance after that. But Jesus actually promoted this sort of holy gullibility about the acceptance of a, the genuineness of a confession of repentance even after some extraordinary number of offenses. And the parallel in Matthew 18 is the 77 or 70 times 7 text, which even elevates it more. So um, that's, that's extraordinarily gracious. But you notice that the element of repentance is critical here. Because if you don't repent, you're still headed down the road leading to your destruction. So what good has transpired? Nothing. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Beautiful visualization of the golden rule. By the way, the golden rule is not the preemptive interpretation do to others before they do it to you, but it's rather do for others what you would want them to do for you. And this is a nice little context. And here's the illustration now, you're lying half dead by the side of the road. Now, think of what the preface is to the parable here. The lawyer asked, I love the lawyers. We have a lot of lawyers here. I was intending on being a lawyer at one point. Um, so, you know, we speak to ourselves here. Uh, who is my neighbor? Because if you can figure out who your neighbor isn't, then you can figure it out who it is you don't have to love. Okay? So that's a nice little lawyerly kind of question. And Jesus tells a parable in which he has to resituate himself, not as the Good Samaritan, incidentally, which would have been thought of as an oxymoron for all of Jesus' hearers. It's like talking almost about the good Nazi. I mean, it's just, you know, Samaritans did not believe in, in any scripture beyond the Pentateuch. They believed there was a mistake moving the Ark to Jerusalem. They believed that David and the whole Davidic dynasty was a fraud. Uh, and Jesus did not accept any of those conclusions. Uh, but, but the point was not to image yourself as the good Samaritan in the parable. That's not who you are. Pat yourself on the shoulder again if you think that. Isn't that nice? You're good. But you're the person lying half dead by the side of the road who now has to ask the question, who is my neighbor? And it is remarkable how inclusive you can be in the interpretation of who neighbor is when you're lying half dead by the side of the road and you're banking on anyone who comes by you to make themselves your neighbor in your hour of need. So if you're in a foxhole and the shells are all around you, and the person who's in the foxhole with you normally couldn't stand, but now is the only thing between you and death, it's remarkable how close you can get to that fellow. 
So if you have trouble loving somebody who's doing something that's wrong, and we know from Jesus' other sayings that certainly he does not agree with the Samaritans and a whole host of views. He's not validating those views. But he's simply saying if you have trouble loving that person, like I have loved sinners and tax collectors and reached out to them to reclaim them for the kingdom of God, calling them to repentance, if you find that problematic, just think of yourself lying half dead by the side of the road and one of those persons is coming by. And then you'll be a little bit more inclusive. The vantage point is everything from where you ask the question. So Jesus used a lot in his ethical uh, statements uh, human self-interest as a way of motivating people. Finally, Jesus' comments about discipleship. What is discipleship? It marked the pivotal moment for discussing discipleship after, G after he has talked about uh, who, who do you say I am, and Peter becomes the first person, not called Peter at that time, he's Shimon, Simon, and he's given the surname uh, Kephas, Aramaic for rock, which is in Greek Petros, where we get Peter. And it's because he's the first human being, according to Mark, who declares Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Up to that point, it's just been demons and God at Jesus' baptism. So Jesus says on that basis, he calls him the rock, which really makes the confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the central pillar. But then Jesus talks about his coming suffering and death. And Peter, of course, takes him aside and explains to him the job description of the Messiah. You've got to love Peter for that, too. A lot of chutzpah, but he just happens to be wrong. And Jesus, in his best pastoral tone, says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan, adversary, you have aligned yourself with the evil one, resisting God's purposes, which involve difficulty and deprivation in your life. And then it issues in a series of climactic teachings about the nature of discipleship, the most important in Mark and perhaps the most important in the New Testament, which is that if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, lose your life, and come follow me. Does that sound like you get to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with whom you want to do it with, consistent with your biological urges? Not to me. Doesn't sound like a little minor reformation of life, but a radical demand on holistic life transformation, consistent not with whatever you think you're born with, but consistent with what the will of God is for your transformation and recreation. That's the call to discipleship. Anyone else should say, well, that must be hateful, but no, it's Jesus who makes it. And it's also, by the way, one of the best attested sayings in Scripture. Is there a distinctive sex ethic in Scripture? You better believe it. Walter Wings charged me with not realizing that at one point in a review he did of my first book. But think about it. Jesus told us to love everybody. Everyone with whom we come into contact is how we defined it. Not just your tribal neighbor. And yet when he defined how many sex partners you could have in the course of life, it wasn't everybody with whom you come into contact with. It was one. So how can there not be a distinctive sex ethic if the love command is universalized to everybody with whom you come into contact, but the sexual ethic demand limits you to one? Is that not distinctive? Are there not distinctive demands then with regard to sexual behavior that you can't simply say, well, I get to have sex with anyone whom I love? No. Sexual requirements have their own special set of requirements because they don't involve merely love but an erotic attachment or joining to someone else. What is the meaning of Jesus' silence on homosexual practice? It's the same as the meaning of silence on incest and bestiality. He simply accepted the only normative view that existed in the Old Testament, that you don't need to talk about a lot. Sometimes the infrequency of mention, how many prohibitions of bestiality are there in the Old Testament? Two, you don't really need to talk about it a lot. 
I've never heard any pastor talk about it. You just don't do it. It's one of those irreducible minimums. So infrequency of mention can sometimes be an indicator of the severity of the offense. For Jesus to go around and saying, in first century Palestine, men stop having sex with men, they'd be looking at him like, who's doing that? We don't have any indication of anyone in all of early Judaism, including the diaspora, having same-sex intercourse within centuries of the life of Jesus. And every mention of it in Judaism is regarded as a supreme sexual offense. There's no indication in the historical context Jesus thought any differently. So we know what Jesus' meaning of his silence was. He actually predicated development of other sexual demands on a male-female prerequisite. So we know what he thought. He thought it was foundational. And that means anyone in the church who violates it now is violating an element of ethics that Jesus himself, our very Lord, regarded as foundational. And you do that at your peril. Because you basically promote a view that puts persons at risk of not inheriting the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed. And to put the moniker of love on that is shameful. And it's shame on the church and shame on many who have not had the courage to love, to truly love, consistent with the vision of God.